Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Hendrix Murphy's podcast, Relit, where literature and language are always topical. We hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Tyrone Jagger. I teach in the English department at Hendrix College, and I am the author of the novel Radio El Dorado, which was recently published by Braddock Avenue Books. Yes, thank you so much for being here. Um, <laughs> for those of you who I'm sure don't know, Ty is my advisor and in general, we have a lot of communication, but um, I think all of us like in, in the department and on campus were super excited to hear about your book coming out. And I pre-ordered it and we had no idea when it was gonna come <laughs> because of, I guess, the pandemic. I'm not really sure, but I was really excited when it arrived. And I made sure to plan out my time actually over the summer to read this because I knew that I wanted to make an episode over this and I knew that I needed to get it done by a certain time so um yeah well so, thanks danielle for i mean number one for having me um on the podcast um i've enjoyed the episodes of re lit um and also you know thanks for um for reading the novel it's not every advisee that would do that <laughs> you get bonus advisee points Oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did really enjoy it. And more than anything, I suppose, like the world that the story is set in. So I have a few questions here that I'm going to go through, um, kind of like our previous episode viewers might be familiar with. But my first one is, how did the idea for both the characters and the world of Radio El Dorado come about? Um, like, did it stem from maybe a short story, a poem, real life experience, or like a combination of sources, maybe? Yeah, I would say um, that a combination of sources is, is really where it came from. Um, I, had, I had written, um, when I was in graduate school, I had written a story called These Are My Arms, which was about um, a high school teacher for at-risk youth and his wife who is an activist filmmaker and for my dissertation i ended up um th there were enough elements to that story that i i was interested in that i ended up taking the story and and writing um, a novel version of it um and there was one chapter that was essentially the the activist filmmaker's origin story. And it took place in 1969 and, and basically was about her biological mother and the the couple who, who raised her. And so um and and then years some years later, as I was returning to the novel to revise it. Um, it was a bit of a mess, to be honest, and I, this was when I first arrived in Arkansas and had the job at Hendrix, mm -hmm. and my first position here was, um, I was the Hendrix Murphy um, Writer-in-Residence, and it was a two-year position, 
And, um, you know, my expectations were that I was going to be um, at Hendricks for two years and then probably go somewhere else. And so on a very practical level, I wanted to have um, a, a book length project that I could finish in that time. Um, and so the the novel that I had expanded as my dissertation, as I said, was kind of a mess. And I knew that it was going to take me a long time to to revise it and i still haven't mm -hmm. but this chapter that was set in 1969 and involved this woman who was um, basically a peace activist turned radical and this couple um matt tate um and vivian wund who are sort of proto-punk rock musicians that that she develops a friendship with that story to me seemed very straightforward. And I thought that it was something that I could do in a short period of time and it would be a relatively brief novel. Um, it, the story itself, radio, the, the story that, that becomes Radio El Dorado eventually um, was developed from my interest in um, the Weather Underground, which you may be familiar with them. Um, they were an organization that was sort of an offshoot of SDS in the 60s, the Students for a Democratic Society, who had leftist leanings and then um, as peaceful protest um, seemed to fail them, took on um, a more radical stance. And so in my research um, into the, the Weather Underground, um, there is a, a woman by the name of Diana Outen, who was the daughter um, of a wealthy politician and who, um, whose life kind of had this trajectory. You know, she went from being a debutante to a dissident. Um, she died um, in this um, townhouse in Greenwich Village while she and her comrades um, who had gone underground were, were making bombs. Um, and I found this, this trajectory to be, you know, really kind of fascinating. And so that element, you know, so did it stem from a short story? Yes, it did. Did it stem from um, not my real life experience, but real life research experience? Yes, it did. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I, you know, was was writing and revising the story, um, I, I had set it in Colorado, which was, you know, totally um, fictitious. I mean, you know, from out in story. Um, and, you know, I, I knew that it was set during this, this period of 1969 to 1970. And so what I started doing was researching, um, what was going on in Denver and the surrounding areas during that time. And one of the things that I, that I quickly found that also captured my imagination was the Mother's Day fire um that took place at the rocky flats um bomb plant and rocky flats 
um, is this area outside of Denver, sort of between Denver and Boulder. And they made um, plutonium triggers that would um, ignite um, hydrogen bombs. And the, the plant was built in the 50s. It was eventually closed in the 80s by the FBI because there had been so much like environmental destruction and corruption mm-hmm. um, surrounding the plant. And one of these episodes um, occurred on a Mother's Day, um, as I said, in 1969. And there was a fire at the plant and the fire um, they had an on-site fire department that fought the fire. And those um, firefighters were hot, um, not heat hot, but like radiation hot. And they couldn't send them back in. And so what they ended up doing was they they sent in people who were not trained to fight fires. Um, They sent in, you know, people who were security guards and the like at the plant. And um, the fire almost went critical and when a nuclear fire of this sort goes critical, it means that you can no longer contain it. Um, so um, it was really close to being critical. And had it gone critical, it would have been um, a Chernobyl-like event. Um, and so I did. A, I was doing a lot of research into what happened at Rocky Flats, and given that this was the you know the origin story. Um, you know, about how my character, Cynthia, who was somewhat based on Diana Outen, becomes a mother, which was not part of Diana Outen's story. <laughs> um, but it was part of, you know, as I said, like this origin story for this this character that I had developed, that, that the fire occurred on Mother's Day um, was a really wonderful sort of gift um, from the storytelling gods. And so... Um, <laughs> You know, that event, um, as you know, the, the Mother's Day fire takes place early in the novel and it kind of kicks everything else into into motion. Mm-hmm. Um, as I continue to do research, um, another thing that was a, a gift from the storytelling gods was that um, that same summer of 1969, um, was the Denver Pop Festival. And the Denver Pop Festival um, featured um, bands like uh, Iron Butterfly and um, Frank Zappa. It was actually the last show that the Jimi Hendrix experience played. So Hendrix played um, after that in other bands, but the, you know, the band that he's best known for the Jimi Hendrix Experience played their last show at the Denver Pop Festival. And so my um, fictional band, um, The Wound Tights, um, take the stage there. And so a lot of what I was doing in the novel was sort of, you know, I had this cast of fictional characters that I was inserting into um, a quasi-historical world, right? So there are a number of characters who, you know, are real people like Hendrix who um, enter the story. Um, yeah, and so that's that's how it developed. I um, There's a lot of research involved. Um, the Rocky Flats fire, um, the, the Boulder Public Library, the Carnegie Library at Boulder, um, has this great um, 
oral history about Rocky Flats. Um, and so it's everyone from politicians who, you know, supported building the plant to people who were upper management, to people who, you know, were secretaries, to people who were there and fought the fire. So, you know, the security guards who were, you know, who were not even well-trained as security guards who fought the fire. There, you know, there are hours of oral histories um, with these people who were, you know, involved at Rocky, at Rocky Flats. And so, you know, I listened to um, to a lot of hours of, of tape, which was just, you know, really fun because it, it, I mean, it was really interesting history. It gave me um, a sense of what people's attitudes were about the plant, you know, the people who worked there. Um, it, it gave me a sense of what it was like to be in that space and be fighting this fire, knowing that any moment, um, you know, it could go critical and that, you know, it was going to decimate um, Denver um, and the surrounding areas. So, yeah, so there was a sort of, there was a lot that went into play um, in terms of how the, the story developed, um, which, you know, I, I, began, <laughs> I began to answer your question by saying that what I had really hoped to do was write um, a pretty straightforward novel that was going to be short and self-contained. And what ended up happening as I began to do research, it ended up being a project that that took me eight years and fortunately you know during that time um my two-year gig at hendrix was renewed for another two years and then it became a tenure track position and um you know they they weren't able to chase me away um, <laughs> like maybe they should have all right well that's really interesting to hear how it started out and how it ended up um Looking at what I'm going to ask, I just, I'm so tempted to like ask like detailed questions about the characters, but I don't think it would make sense in the larger context of things, especially for those who haven't read the book. Um, but I will ask um, a little bit about your writing process, I guess, not to sound like too cliche, even though that's what everyone asks of a writer. Um, but I'm really curious to know about if you knew where the plot was going or if it was something that you decided kind of along the way? Yeah. Um, the, I mean, in thinking about where the book was going, um, I don't know that I always have a clear sense of the end of a story. Like I, I and, and this is whether it's a short story or whether it's, you know, a, a something that's that's novel length um i i oftentimes have like a a sense of the the tone that i want mm -hmm. you know I, I know that i i i want this story to work towards something that feels hopeful or something that seems you know chaotic or that i know that i'm working from like order to disorder or disorder to order um, you know, so that there's just, I don't have a sense of like what exactly will happen in the end, but more like I have a sense of how I want it to feel. Um, 
this project, I actually did know, and you know, I, I'm not going to give away the ending, of course, but I I knew what the last couple of scenes were going to look like, mm-hmm. uh, which was um, which was really beneficial for writing the novel. I mean, even though it ended up going in a lot of directions that I didn't realize when I set out, you know, the sort of like subplots and things that are happening with um, characters, major and minor, Um, you know, because when I initially conceived of the novel, I really thought it would just focus on um, Cynthia Hutton, um, Mm -hmm. who is the, you know, the activist turned radical. Um, But I found myself really interested in um, Matt Tate, who is um, one half or one third, I guess, of the Wound Tights, and his wife and bandmate, Vivian Wand. You know, I, I really took a shining to those characters and was interested to see um, what their trajectory was in the story beyond Cynthia. And so I ended up like, what I thought was going to be, you know, a third person limited novel ended up having uh, more points of view than, um, than I suspected. (laughs) And, um, but even just knowing like the one character's trajectory sort of helped me, um, be able to get to the end. Um, one of my favorite writers, um, Dennis Johnson, um, has a quote about novel writing. It's something like, you know, the the joy and challenge of writing novels is that it's like swimming out into the ocean and swimming out until like you cannot see the shore and you no longer know which direction the shore is. But in order to complete book, you have to get back to shore. And so that sense of being lost I did have like this one buoy, right? Which was, I knew where Cynthia's story was going to to end. And that did help me, um, you know, basically plot the book though. I don't know. I, I think a lot of writers say that they, that plot isn't their um, strong suit. Um, and I definitely would say that, that I'm more a character-based writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, also, like, it, you know, in thinking about this question, what my writing process was like, um, there are a lot of starts and stops. I do, with longer work, do a lot of um, outlining, but it's a kind of, it's an outline that is as much about keeping my track of things, you know, so I'll create an outline and and then as I'm writing, I'll see that whatever that was in the outline has changed. And so I just, you know, I, I keep the outline as a, as an easy like visual for me to be able to glance at and be like, Oh yeah, this is the shape of the story. And then I quickly see, you know, if I changed, if there's an action that changed in a chapter, I, I can visually note how that changes um, the rest of the story. 
I do, especially in works where I've got multiple points of view, I do a lot of color coding of, you know, I've got this outline and Max chapters are in blue and Cynthia's chapters are in green and mm-hmm. Vivian's chapters um, are in purple or whatever. And so I can sort of, you know, look at that outline and get a sense of the balance or imbalance, um, whether intentional or or otherwise. Um, you know, maybe another thing about process, Danielle, is that, you know, I was writing um, regularly um, on the novel, but I did during that period of time, um, probably once a year, I did short, relatively short residencies. So sometimes they were, you know, only like a week, I did a number of 10-day residencies. I did one that was two weeks. Um, You know, in those writing residencies, I guess maybe I'll I'll back up. Like, so a writing residency for, you know, um, maybe folks that don't know, um, there are places that you can go um, that support um, writers and, and visual artists and other artists, musicians, and basically, like, give them, um, a space to write um, and give them a place where there are no distractions. Um, and during during the writing of Radio El Dorado, I did a number of residencies, as I said, and and those, you know, like working for a week or ten days or two weeks, um, that extended time where I would um, do nothing really but focus on the book were invaluable, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd get up, have a cup of coffee and eat some breakfast and write until it was lunchtime. And then, you know, maybe I'd go take a jog and then write through the afternoon, eat dinner, um, get gather my wits and then be writing again, you know? And so I'd have these days where, you know, with the exception of like an hour or two, all my waking time was spent thinking and and writing the book and and that kind of immersion um is i mean number one it's a like it's an incredible privilege to have that um i haven't um taken that privilege um since my daughter was born seven years ago happy Mm -hmm. birthday she her birthday on friday thursday thursday um um but you know um i i'm looking forward to doing that again um, because that that is an important part of my process, you know, as someone who, um, you know, teaches full time and the the responsibilities that I have during the semester, um, I don't. It doesn't provide me with a lot of writing time, or I don't take a lot of writing time um, as much as I wish that I did. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that um, those immersion experiences are are a big part of the process and being able to focus. Yeah, for sure. And and that's something I've thought about a lot because I know that those opportunities exist and I've wondered like if they actually work <laughs> or not. And it definitely seems so. So that's good. Um, I'm very interested to hear about actually. I'm going to skip over this next question because I feel like it's kind of like doesn't really fit in with the rest and also for time's sake. Okay. Um, but... 
So the next one after that then would be, what do you think Radio El Dorado offers to young adult readers, especially those who consider themselves activists? Um, hmm. What does it offer to young adult readers? I guess, you know, um, there, there are times, um, that I feel like, um, and this was true in the sixties as well, you know, and I was born like around the time that this book is set. Um, Mm -hmm. so I don't want, um, no one should think that like I experienced the (laughs) sixties. Um, uh, I'm a Gen Xer, right? I'm not a boomer. Um, but I guess, you know, one of the things that I think um, is really easy for um, younger people to forget is that, you know, every generation is, has had their their struggles, right? And these struggles are actually really connected in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the I was myopic enough when I was a young person that, you know, I, I was sort of interested in the 60s because it seemed like there was this radical change in politics and radical change in music and culture and that, you know, um, that it opened up all these things. But, you know, it wasn't until later that I like came to realize that um, there were plenty of struggles before, you know, what occurred in the, the 60s. And, you know, those people are, you know, building their work off of, um, you know, what others did before them, right? Like they're standing on other people's shoulders in some ways. Um, And I guess, you know, for young activists, um, I would encourage them to, you know, it's always important to go forwards, but it's, it's equally important to learn from from people who um, were engaged in activism um, prior to your own experience, right? Um, you know, and I think a lot of young activists do this. I mean, all the time I see people quoting, you know, James Baldwin, for example, right? Like that would be, you know, a great person to, um, great writer to, to invest a lot of time and energy in and you know sort of see what 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 the struggles were like um prior to i mean i guess as well in in thinking about you know what the book might offer to young activists one of the things that was really strange about um the timing of the publication of radio (laughs) el dorado was that you know, it came out this spring um, in the midst of the pandemic um, and in, um, you know, during sort of the, I don't, I don't think it would be accurate to say the, the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, I think that there's a kind of energy that's occurring, but like it was at a moment where um, the book came out in this moment where it was holy cow there are 
so many people in the streets and I've never seen anything like this in my life. Mm-hmm. And having written a novel that was about activism and people taking to the streets, you know, I very much wanted to be like, this is a novel for our times. But I also <laughs> felt like, you know what? It's not your time to speak and you can just be quiet and people will buy the book and, you know, with the pandemic going on, um, you will, um, you will have plenty of time, like when things, um, you know, when we're in a non-pandemic world, then you can, you know, um, I don't know, uh, do more to, I hate even using this word, like do more to sort of like try to like get people to read the book, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I agree, the timing of the book (laughs) couldn't have been better, really. Um, And it's interesting to draw parallels between the events in the book, I suppose, and then the protests that I think were happening more of the summer than they probably are now. But Mm -hmm. yeah, Um, I guess that leads me to my, well, not my last question, but kind of as it relates to the content of the book. Um, Is there anything in particular that you'd like readers to take away from your book? Um, Well, you know, my smart-ass answer would be to, you know, like refer to um, Flannery O'Connor and others who have said, you know, when someone asks, like, what's the meaning of the story? (laughs) And and the, the answer would be, well, read it. And, you know, that's the meaning of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there is a takeaway necessarily. I mean, when you, let me, I'm going to flip the question towards you, even though you, you said earlier that you'd prefer that I did most of the talking. <laughs> do, do, you, do you feel that most of the books that you read novels or even stories for that matter that there is necessarily a, a takeaway or do you do you feel that there's some like i don't know like almost like an immersive experience that is that something happens that maybe is undefinable um yeah i definitely I don't, I don't think I have read anything where I'm like, this is the message. And if so, then that's the purpose of the book. Like it's supposed to like indoctrinate people with their beliefs or something like that. But no. And then I I think about probably one of the most significant books that I've read recently. And this is thanks to my literary analysis class. um, I read Moby Dick. And so whenever you're asking me that question, I was like, huh, like, you know, that's a classic. And some people might ask, like, what's the takeaway? And I don't really think there is one, and, and I'd agree. I don't think that, for the most part, when it comes to works of fiction, there are particular things that the author intends. I don't know. It's like a journey is the only, is the, it's the first thing that comes to mind, like, to describe that. It's, it is an immersive experience, and it's more just, like, enjoying the ride of reading it. And even if there's a, a dramatic end, that kind of like makes you think like, wow, like it's all over. It's not, it doesn't really leave you with a lesson or a message as much as it leaves you with like this feeling of like, what do I do now? Like after reading this entire book and then you get to the end and you're like, it's so involved in it. I feel like a lot of people feel that way. So yeah. Yeah, I I like that idea, you know, because I, you know, I think that 
in in writing this book, I really wanted to like capture, um, you know, I mentioned points of view before, but I wanted to capture the perspectives of many different kinds of of people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the ca- character of Alvin who is one of the primary characters, but he doesn't fit the description of you know, a Cynthia who's an activist or Mac and, and Vivi who are musicians. Um, you know, Alvin is a working class schmo. He's a guy who is there fighting the fire. His politics are um, conservative. His outlook on life is, it's not, I wouldn't say that it's simple, but he wants it to be simple. Right. And so, you know, part of, I guess, the takeaway for me, you know, what I hope is that the the experience of reading the book creates like a series of experiences or uh, use the word journey, like a journey that's so varied that when you finish it, um, you're feeling um maybe slightly confused but also like you have a very vivid sense of the world you know i mean i i want i mean i think this book despite like the serious subject matter i think that it's actually quite funny in places you know i, no, me I too. wanted it to have this <laughs> um rollicking kind of feel but then i wanted it to pivot from the rollicking to being more meditative and then to being um you know more serious um you know and it's i don't know i don't know that the there might be satirical moments but it's not funny in the sense that like i'm poking fun so much as like i'm just embracing the ridiculousness of you know our lives sometimes (laughs) Right. Yeah. Personally, after reading um, the book, I guess, I guess the takeaway isn't like a lesson or a message. The takeaway could be a lot of things. But for me, it especially being like of the generation I am, like I'm not even 20 yet. <laughs> and so my parents actually, unlike a lot of people in my generation, are baby boomers. Um, my dad is like, in his mid to late 60s or something, I'm pretty sure, and my mom is like in her late 50s. And I know for sure that my dad was a teen, or like kind of a, maybe a preteen, but like 15 around this time, maybe like, yeah, 69. And it's really interesting for me to think about, and I think my takeaway is the variety of characters, and then like the times, and just like seeing how unique like people can be. It, it gave me a lot of things to think about, because it's a world that I'm not familiar with in any way that I've never really read about, even like in history classes or anything like that. Um, And so seeing these characters and how they interact with the world and just like how kind of zany they are (laughs) to me, I I think that that really made me realize how different people are and maybe not necessarily having to do with like over generations, but just the variety that we find like in every generation between people. So, yeah. I like the thing. <laughs> um, you know, the, um, 
like Astro and all those, like the, um, the, the group of folks who, um, hang out with the major and all those people, like mm-hmm. really dirty people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, they were really fun to write and they were, um, you know, a friend of mine had, had read some pages of the novel early on and there was a, um, in the alternative weekly in Denver, um, or central, or I guess it is Denver technically, Denver Boulder is the westward. There was, there was this article about, um, you know, the family and they were the STP family. Um, and they were, you know, referred to in the article as like the filthiest people in the world. You know, they were just like, they were like beyond being hippie, but like ingesting all sorts of insane drugs and living communally and panhandling on the street. And, you know, um, they were, you know, um, very criminal. Then as I read about them, I was like, oh, like, how can I, how can I not write about these people or include them in the novel somehow, you know, and so... I, I frequently, I think, you know, in this novel and probably in other work that I do too, I mean, I find myself being a collector a little bit, you know, and, and putting these things together. And so like the, um, the idea of there being like a particular takeaway is hard for me to define because I've put such a, like, strange world together hopefully strange but also engaging Mm -hmm. i i don't necessarily know what to make of it myself you know i i don't um it's rare that i approach my work from a certain like a a didactic angle where i start off with here's what i want this book to show the world about yeah (laughs) human life um it's more like I I want to make characters that are, um, you know, while they might be strange, I, I, I still want them to be, you know, navigating the world in some kind of way that that um, that we come to understand um, and and perhaps appreciate, you know, but they're how to say it. Um, I guess like there's a sloppiness to to life that mm-hmm. I like to have in my fiction, you know, so it makes it really difficult to say like, here's the takeaway. <laughs> I understand that. Yeah. And I think it it's true that for different forms of art, that it is really like, it's different for every person, what someone takes away, um, and it's up to interpretation to an extent, I suppose, but what someone, like, personally receives from, I don't know, like, going to a museum or looking at an art exhibition or watching a play or reading a book, like, for each person, I feel like it's different what they get from that, and um, that just is a universal thing, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, yeah, you bring yourself to the work, right? Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, that all that all definitely makes sense. Um, I guess to get closer to the end here, I have what I labeled as a fun question because I don't know, I'm just interested in the answer to this. So would you ever give your book to your students as a signed reading and why or why not? 
Um, no. Do you mean this book in particular or any books? Mm. Let's let's explore both, maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I guess regardless, the 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 answer is no. <laughs> um, in part because, you know, when you say give my books to my students, it's actually like when I assign books um, to my students, um, it means they have to purchase them. True, that's right. <laughs> and I don't, I wouldn't feel right about like saying to, um, you know, a group of 15 students in my fiction writing class, like you have to buy my novel now. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's that, there's that element. Um, I mean, I guess to, there's something maybe slightly narcissistic about doing that. Yeah. You know, of all the books that I could pick, that I'm picking my own. Um, and you know i mean i do think there's something valuable about like talking to students about one's own process but right. to be honest like i i only like dip my toes in that water mm -hmm. um you know i'm sure that there i've had plenty of students who you know would finish my class and if they they found out that i wrote three books would be like you know, I didn't know that, like, we had a writer who was teaching us. I mean, I'll see this. <laughs> in, I'll see this on occasion, like, in student, you know, like, the feedback forms where students are, you know, offering feedback on courses and, and instructor. Mm -hmm. And they'll talk about, like, one of the things they love was, like, you know, Hendrix Murphy stuff and Shop Talk, where they got to talk to real live writers. And I'm like, man... Weren't we doing that the whole semester? Weren't you talking to a real live writer who, like, was your teacher, but also, you know, like, all your classmates are writing, right? Like, they're real live writers, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, if I can chime in here, that's something I've been struggling with personally. Like, I guess that's, like, a, a whole other conversation, but, like, what makes you a writer? When can you label yourself as, like, a writer or a poet? And... That's kind of confusing sometimes, but also I think, I think that uh, students might have feedback like or give feedback like that because of the awe that surrounds Murphy visiting writers or or mm. something like that. It's like they're writers, like they're coming to talk to us about their writing, and this is like a once in a lifetime experience. And then even if they know that like you write or you're a writer. They're like, yeah, that's my professor. <laughs> I feel like that's like that's the difference. But definitely, if I received that feedback, I'd be like, yeah, like I'm a writer. What are you talking about? Yeah, well, you know, and I certainly, you know, I don't mean in in saying that, you know, um, I don't know, like I'm not, I, I I wouldn't claim to be, you know, of the. Um, you know, the class of, of writer like Mosin Hamid or someone like that, you <laughs> right. know, where like you should be in awe, right? Like <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of funny. But I you know, um I also one time um I won't say names here, um <laughs> but I remember one time I was 
I was doing um, this conference and, you know, so there are a number of writers, it was writers talking about writing in this conference and, um, and, and about teaching. And there was a, a moment where like this one writer teacher said something about this other writer teacher and about how this second writer teacher didn't sit well with them. And I was like, why is that? Hmm. And they said, they teach their own work. Mm. And I was like, ooh, yeah, that, like, and it just made me think about it. Um, and the, you know, the degree to which, like, is that, like, is that okay? Um, yeah. I have done, um, you know, to be completely transparent, I have, um, there is one story sort of poem that I have that I will occasionally in um, in this course that I teach called Literary Hybrids, we teach, we, we read like prose poetry, brief prose poetry, micro essays, flash fiction. So everything is really short prose. And we'll do this, we'll have this conversation where I give them like maybe like half a dozen um, works that don't have writers' names on them, um, and it, they're they're not labeled mm-hmm. as poetry or fiction or nonfiction. Um, and we'll read them and and have a conversation about like, does this piece seem like it wants to be read as poetry, or does it want to be read as essay? Does it want to be re- read as short story? And there's a a piece that I wrote um, that I originally wrote it as a as a prose poem. And then um, I sent it out a bunch and no one would publish it. And then like I sent it out somewhere as a short story and it immediately got picked up. And I don't know why that is, um, you know, and, and now I think of it as a short story. Um, but, you know, like I use it in that moment, um, you know, I'm, I'm handing it out on a piece of paper. I'm not <laughs> making them buy anything. Right. Um, and using it so that I can tell this story about, you know, I positioned this piece as poem, and then this happened, and then I positioned this piece as story, and this happened. Um, so yeah, that's where I stand on teaching my own work. <laughs> yeah, that's totally understandable. Um, I think it's interesting to think about, I don't know if professors do this, but I, I it might be a possibility, like, putting in their own work to be workshopped or something like that. I feel like that's a lot different though, because it's it's like just gaining feedback rather than using your work to like teach your students. There, there was mm-hmm. one time, one experience I had, um, this was in high school, one of my teachers I think I think it's because we were really wanting him to like read us his work or something like that or just show it to us and he didn't want to. But uh, we used to like look at the poem a day emails together in class and he mm-hmm. like had us try to figure out which one was his like either it was the poem of a day or yeah poem a day and um, his work and then we were trying to figure out which was which and that was pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I know there, there's there's a line, I guess, for how you well, implement your work into your yeah. classes. 
I guess I was just going to say that that seems like a, a different kind of thing. You know, like I, I did an event at the Six Bridges Book Festival on Saturday and I encourage my classes to go, um, you know, so it's not that like I'm hiding it and I would never have, I would never have students workshop my work because I mean, early drafts of my stuff are so horrific. Like if, they, <laughs> if I shared with my students, you know, I mean, they'd, they'd ask for their money back. Right. Like, um, and so, so it's better just to steer, steer clear, right. Like talk about process and, right. and, and not delve into my own work. Yeah, that's fair. Well, talking about your own work, that kind of leads us into the final thing on the agenda, which is what other projects do you have in the works? <laughs> um, well, the the thing that I'm really excited about now is is kind of a different writing project for me. Um, in the spring of 2020, um, I was um, awarded a Hutton Odyssey professorship um, with um, Hendricks photography professor Maxine Payne. And what we're doing um, in this in this project that we're calling um, AV Audiovisual. AV Arkansas um, is we are making multimedia um, documentary stories about Arkansans um, with a particular eye at looking at, at rural folks. And so we're doing, um, we're making photo essays, we're making short films, we're making um, radio pieces, we're, um, we're working with a group of four students. So every, you know, the Odyssey professorship last for three years. So every year we'll have um, a different group of four students. Um, I guess the numbers there could change a little bit. And so it's been really fun. I mean, during the summer, um, you know, while we had to social distance and, you know, be very careful, um, we interviewed a lot of people um, in central Arkansas and in the Ozarks, um, you know, and so, um, we're now, um, we did most of the field work in the summer and now we're, um, we're working on, um, making the stories. Um, we did a, a, um, a kind of multifaceted project, um, in Twin Groves, which is, um, a community, um, about half an hour drive north of Conway mm -hmm. that was, um, founded, um, by freed slaves from, um, Tennessee and the Carolinas. Um, wow. And we did, um, we did a bunch of interviews with with folks who live in Twin Groves. And we took probably took like 100 um, portraits of people who like either grew up in Twin Groves or live there now. Um, and we did that in collaboration with the Ozark Foothills African American History Museum. And so, you know, we're making our own work with the the interviews and and audio uh the interviews and um the photographs that we made but then we have we're also um giving the museum um digital copies of the the photographs so that they can you know they 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 have a lot of historical material but they don't have as much that documents like the current moment Mm -hmm. um, so it was a lot of fun and really um, exciting to to work with the Twin Groves community, and you know we just got to meet um, 
lot of people and in the spring um everyone should come out um covid willing we will have um a listening and viewing party on campus where um the you know people will be able to listen to the radio stories they'll be able to watch the films we'll have the photographs hung and some of these stories too like are you know they might have like photographs but then there's also um like an audio component as well um we're gonna have a website but at this big listening and viewing party um you know it'll be open to the public um all the subjects that we worked with you know we're inviting them to campus and so um yeah be sure um in the spring um to keep your eyes open for that i think it'll be a lot of fun and you're gonna see a lot of really great um documentary storytelling yeah that sounds super awesome i had no idea that you guys were doing that so i'm glad to hear it now and hopefully yeah in the spring it'll be possible to see it covid willing <laughs> yeah i mean you know even if it turns out that for whatever reason you know we can't have this listening and viewing party we will certainly most certainly have um the website but you know i think we probably try to figure out a way um you know maybe much like the um black lives matter um exhibit at the wingate right now that we do something where people could access it mm -hmm. in a in a safe way um which maybe the safest way is going to be the website but hopefully um we'll get things turned around here yeah yeah for sure um, well, thank you so much <laughs> for this entire, I suppose, yeah, 50 minutes is what it went up to, um, talking about your book and other things. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for having me, Danielle. It was a real pleasure to talk to you, um, and, you know, thanks for, um, for doing the podcast. Um, it's a really nice service um, to the Hendrix community and whoever else out there in radio land or podcast land who <laughs> listens um yeah it was it was really nice for you to um have me on and um give me a chance to talk about the novel thanks for listening to another episode of relit join us next time for yet another dive into the world of literature and language <laughs>